Hello and welcome to Second World Problems, a problem-solving podcast, or or at least like a problem discussion, a problem notice and then discuss podcast, you know, something like that. No. <laughs> no, Morgan. Go on. I know, I know you improv, but like, I didn't, not that one. I didn't improv. I wrote that down. <laughs> Oh, please. I also have a, well, I'll tease it. I've got a bit of an ending as well planned because we needed oh, okay. an ending. So we'll, uh, we'll see how that goes. But uh, as always, I am Morgan and I am here. But also this week, I am a Grey Warden. <laughs> you can sort of tell that Morgan doesn't know what we're doing this week a little <laughs> bit. But that's fine. Um, I I am Finn, host of this podcast, and this week I am Lord Inquisitor Lavellan, vanquisher of the rebel mages of Ferelden, crusher of the vile apostates of the mage underground, champion of the blessed Andraste herself, and we're doing Dragon Age Inquisition, plus some origins and Dragon Age 2. Um, and if you haven't, if you've played Dragon Age Inquisition, you might know that um, introduction because it comes from the game itself and also my first playthrough. So I stole it. Nothing original here. <laughs> I did do a bit of a crash course in, this week, but that was legit just watching a bunch of YouTube videos. There, It's a dense world. It's, it's very, very dense. dense. Like, um, and people, like, basically the, the structure for this is going to be, be a bit more, um, like, I stuck together in that a lot of things relate to a lot of other things. So our categories that we normally deal with aren't as rigid with this one. We do a bit of mixing in. It also means that um, I have things that aren't mentioned in the document that I might mention for context. It depends if I remember because there's quite a lot to cover. Um, and also if you want to know anything that I, more about something, either I haven't mentioned it or you're just curious, Morgan, um, just ask a question and I'll do my best to answer. I'm I probably very know curious. the answer because I know a lot about this. So yeah. It also means that, unfortunately, in this episode, we don't have a lot of comparison to our world because there's just too much in the actual world of Dragon Age itself for us to cover that coming out, taking a step back is kind of difficult with all the other stuff we've already got in there. So to blast right off, the world we are uh, that we are doing today that Dragon Age is based in is called Thetis. Um, just for a bit of background, the Dragon Age game franchise started with Dragon Age Origins in 2009. It was produced by Bioware. It was then followed by Dragon Age 2 in 2011. And the latest game to be released was Dragon Age Inquisition in 2014. So fans, including myself, are very excited for the next installment of the series to be released sometime within the next few years. So it's rumoured to be in 2022. And it's tentatively titled Dragon Age The Dreadwolf Rises, which references some things that happen in Inquisition. But it's it's all a bit, aside from some concept art, there's really not much out there at the moment for that. But I'm very excited. 2014 is a while. I guess, I know, I know games was, take a while, but that's quite a bit. It was a while ago. But when you, like, considering the quality of Dragon Age Inquisition as a game and the fact that Bioware continues to want to make better models of their games it sort of makes a lot of sense especially when we get into some of the other stuff um, down below you'll see like why it takes so long for them to code certain things in their games so dragon age origins so the first game follows the story of the hero of ferelden and companions a gray warden fighting against the darkspawn during the fifth blight 
And I don't expect anyone who hasn't played any of Dragon Age to understand any of these words, but we will discuss them further on, so just <laughs> bear with me. Um, Dragon Age 2 is the story of Hawk and Companions, champion of Kirkwall in the years that follow the Fifth Blight in the city of Kirkwall, and the politics between the Circle of Mages and the Order of the Templars. Again, Templars coming into a fantasy world, nothing is new under the sun. Dragon Age Inquisition follows the story of the Inquisitor and companions trying to close the breach in the veil and fighting against Corypheus and his army of demons. Again, we'll sort of get into a bit more detail of that, so that way it makes a bit more sense in context and how it relates to everything else. So to start with our invention category, I've said medium. Um, I would love to say high, and I did sort of initially think that high would be where I was leaning, but the thing is that it does engage in a lot of epic fantasy convention, which came, which was developed a lot earlier than these games were developed. So that means there's already like a common understanding of magic and of political structures in, in fantasy and how they sort of play into the world building of any fantasy, unless it's significantly different. So that means there's already a common, um, there already like there are some inventive things. So like the, like the Canari is like a really inventive race that is sort of similar to giants but more interesting. So like that's sort of a variation of, of a convention that's new and interesting but not enough to make it a high invention. And then natural structures aren't that different, but like considering you can also can collect plants to combine into potions and bombs and stuff. And there's like the codexes and the differences in settings. It's all pretty impressive. So you get different climates with different flora and fauna. So there's a lot of open world, especially in Dragon Age Inquisition. But it's all still um, really conventional of fantasy. It's just that there's a lot of it. So like medium as opposed to high. Yeah, I recognized a lot of the stuff. Like there's dwarves, there's elves, um, there's, yeah. Uh, even the a thing called the Chantry, which is like a common, uh, mm. commonly used within uh, fantasy novels. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and we'll get a bit more into like some of those structures later on. Um, completeness, I've written big iceberg energy. We're coming back to the mean? iceberg. <laughs> oh, okay. Actually, no, I remember. Coming now. back to yeah, we're coming back to the iceberg um, analogy where there's a you get only the top stuff, and then but then there's all the stuff on the bottom. So like there's an implication through the codexes, through the text that appears on the loading screen, um, the map itself, that there's a lot to Thetis that we haven't seen and haven't experienced in the games. So that's why Dragon Age 4 is such an exciting prospect because it's rumored to take place in Tevinter, a place that the games haven't been yet. Um, so we've had two, so we haven't been to Tevinter. We've had Dorian, who's from there. We've had two characters from Antiva, Zevran and Josephine. We also haven't been there. We've heard about Navarra, but we haven't been there. So Dragon Age Inquisition gives us the most comprehensive look at Ferelden and Orlais. Um, and Dragon Age 2 focuses a lot on the free, march, free marches, but there's still a lot of the world that the audience has only heard of, let alone experienced in the gameplay. So there's so much more to, to Thetis than even what three games have currently covered, although in saying that, Dragon Age Inquisition is the most open world of that game, so that's the reason why it's probably my favourite. In terms of consistency, the games do a fair amount of work to build off one another, and players can customise their choices to integrate into the next game so that their choices in the previous game can affect some things in the one that they're currently playing. So I think that's a real commitment to offering multiple experiences of a world, but also keeping it consistent. 
So I, I can only imagine that Bioware has like a huge, like either just a, the biggest filing cabinet the world has ever seen or a huge database full of things keeping this world consistent because the amount of work they're doing is is really admirable in that aspect, especially because it carries through across multiple games. Yeah, I don't even know how like just like video game companies in general like track this stuff like and then like this game is dense like we've said that already like this is next level but even just like when they split off it's like well i'm gonna do this region and i'm gonna do this region it's like how how do they like figure out like what what goes where like how it's oh crazy i can't even begin to figure out like what would how it will work no and i mean it would be fascinating to know how they keep track of all that stuff but i imagine it's the same thing for like tv and novels as well they just have a big filing cabinet um (laughs) that they pull stuff out of so, just the tried and true method, a giant filing cabinet. Yep. Yeah, I mean, it worked for what? Didn't George R. R. Martin have a giant? I mean, he might not. He might have updated now. Maybe he has like an iPad with lots of cloud storage. But didn't that filing cabinet was the traditional writer's method for keeping track of world building? All right. So we're going to move right along into structure and we're going to start getting into the nitty gritty details of the world building. And this is when, yeah, if Morgan, if you need any context, happy to give it to you. But you're going to have to ask because there's a lot going on we'll see how um, we go begin with setting so far the games have covered various areas of Thetis but not all of it the map is quite large there's a lot of places we haven't been so Dragon Age Origins is set specifically in Ferelden um, with places such as Haven and Orzammar slash the Deep Roads and Redcliffe coming up again in Dragon Age Inquisition so you get to go to those three places twice and see how they've changed over the time period um, so Haven is a town in Ferelden that you visit, visit in Dragon Age Origins in order to find the sacred ashes of Andraste to save um, Arl Eamon and then return to it in Dragon Age Inquisition as the first base of the Inquisition as it is close to the Temple of Sacred Ashes, which is a callback to Dragon Age Origins. That's where you find the sacred ashes. Unfortunately, that temple also explodes at the start of Dragon Age Inquisition to begin the game, so it doesn't exist right. anymore. That's a shame. Um, the Deep Roads. So the Deep Roads come up, I think, in every single game. So they're roads beneath Orzammar, the un- underground hold of the dwarves, and then out into other areas of Ferelden. And they're basically filled with Darkspawn, Bad Guys, Lyrium, and Magic Relics. So it's just like um, whenever you go there, be prepared to die. Like you're <laughs> going to die a couple of times in the Deep Roads. That was when I did my th- research. Like so a concept that interests me is like this idea of like the Deep Roads. It's essentially like, well, dwarves exist in this world. So you've got above ground, but there's like a whole other level below ground where the dwarves yeah. have just dug all these roads, multiple cities. And I'm like, that's yeah. super interesting. But obviously Darkspawn lived there. so <laughs> Yes, because <laughs> they pushed them back to what, like two yeah. cities or something? Like <laughs> Yeah. So yeah, the deep roads are basically just filled with Darkspawn. And like fun, fun fact. So we'll get a bit into what Grey Wardens have to do with Darkspawn a bit later. But like Grey Wardens, when their time sort of comes to die, the way that they choose to do it rather than sort of just going crazy above ground is that they go underground and they fight off Darkspawn until they die. <laughs> And that's, oh, yeah. that's how they end their journeys. Um, and I find that quite sad, but it's just, it's a really interesting fact of world if building. that's what they want to um, do. Redcliffe is a city in the hinterlands of Ferelden and one of the first places you go in Dragon Age Inquisition. Um, it's the seat of, it's not really, it's not necessarily the seat of power, but it is like a an important principality in the Ferelden state, I guess. Um, Dragon Age 2 is set in Kirkwall for the most part with excursions to the Free Marches 
Um, Kirkwall, also known as the City of Chains, is a coastal city-state and a major population centre located in the Free Marches, whereas the Free Marches encompass a group of city-states situated in eastern Thetis, so south of Antiva and the Tevinter Imperium, east of Navarre and north of Ferelden. A sort of upper in-between. As a, if you're imagining a map, which I don't imagine you are, but like, so Ferelden, is, Ferelden and Orlais are sort of the bottom, and then if you go up a bit, squished in is sort of, like, in the sea is Kirkwall, and then the free marches are sort of on the other coast of that sea, and then there's a bunch of shit over the other way that we haven't been to yet. <laughs> anyway, not important. The three real cities with any semblance of power in the marches are Kirkwall, Starkhaven, and Tantavale. We've only been to Kirkwall. Each um, are led by a titled official with the special right to name their city's champion, hence why Hawk in Dragon Age 2 becomes champion of Kirkwall. Um, Dragon Age Inquisition is set across both Ferelden and Orlais, with many places within those due to the open world nature of the game. So you, you're hopping around a million different places um, in Dragon Age Inquisition between those two states, I guess. I don't know if you'd call them territories, maybe. I always hate... When I play it, I don't know why, but I always dread going to the Hissing Wastes, even though it's not that bad. I hate, I dread going to the Western Approach, even though it's not that bad. And I dread going to Orzammar, the Deep Roads, even though it's not that bad. <laughs> but I usually save those three for last, because I'm like, uh, I just the Deep Roads sound pretty shit. I mean, they're, they're fun, and they're not, it's just like, they're, there's like stuff that I just don't care about. Like, I don't want to collect all 12 Dwarven mugs, uh, but, like, inevitably, because I am a pack rat, I will pick up anything I come across, and they'll be like, oh, you've collected six Dwarven mugs out of 12, and I'm like, I don't want to get the rest of those. <laughs> but you've already <laughs> begun it. You need to finish it. No, I can't do it. If they're in, like, plain sight, and I'm just like, oh, going through, pick that up, that's fine. But if I have to go looking for them, I'm out. Um, only, I only do that for, like, important stuff. <laughs> Well, if it's just like random collectibles, I just can't be bothered. Um, Dragon Age Inquisition introduces several new types of demon into the game, as well as high dragons. So those are, Morgan, for your, for your context, they're big dragons, as opposed to normal dragons in the game, which are like sort of man-sized. These are big dragons. But also <laughs> the like dragon... the big bad guys are dragons as well, right? Like sort the of. things that cause the blight. Sort of. That's what Yes and no. <laughs> yes. So, okay. Um, that one's a bit more difficult to explain. So, in the natural world, there are, there are by-size little dragons. And these are natural creatures. There's little dragons. There's dragons, which are man-size. And there's high dragons, which are about the size of a normal... Like, a, when you would think of a dragon, size of a normal dragon. Yep. And they exist naturally within the world. And then there are the old gods, which are dragons who were worshipped by the Tevinter Imperium as gods, like a while ago. And it's their corruption, I think. Like there's there's an interaction between the Darkspawn's corruption and them that allows them to rise again as archdemons, which has to do with the Blight. So, like, they're dragons, but they're not high. Like, they're not the Dragon Age Inquisition's high dragons. They're just, I mean, they might have been once, but they're not anymore. Okay, that so makes like, sense. I mean, you do, you do drag, like, you get an award if you slay all the dragons, which is what I do every single game, even though I sort of hate it. But, like, you get so many good rewards for killing dragons. 
um, so like they are bad and they do want you to kill them. And like, there is I there is the potential that they could go into that cycle, but I'm not a hundred percent sure on like the mechanics of how that works within the world building because it's quite specific and weird. So like, they're not the same thing, but you know, there's a connection between them. But the dragons in Dragon Age Inquisition, the high dragons, they're just you know chilling, <laughs> doing their thing in like remote corners of the world. And like you can kill them, but you don't have to. You're not penalized if you don't. So like, in terms of game mechanics, it's like not one of the high priorities. Yeah, do what you want to do. Yeah, basically. Um, in terms of rules, which is our next category, we're gonna start. I've divided this bit into system rules and world rules because they're different things. So like, in terms of system system rules, each game lets you play a new hero with a new cause. So if you keep up your world state at Dragon Age Keep, which is just a website, you can implement it into the newest game. And sometimes you can, you know, meet characters who will tell you stories about previous characters, like your heroes from past games, or they might appear again. So you often get, um, in Dragon Age Inquisition, you get a couple of companions from previous games which return. So Varric from Dragon Age 2 is a, also a companion in Dragon Age Inquisition. Um, Morrigan from Dragon Age Origins is a non-companion character, but she is in the game and she does have um, plot points, I guess. Um, and then you also can get like, for instance, in Dragon Age Inquisition because Liliana was a companion in Dragon Age Origins and she is your spy master in Inquisition. She can send a letter to the hero of Ferelden, so your character provided they survived um, in your version of Dragon Age Origins, and then they can send you, send her a letter back, even though, like, you don't get to meet them, you know, they still exist in the world. You can be pen and, like, pals with yourself. Yeah, well, not really. <laughs> but, like, the mechanic is there so that way your your stories can affect and continue to be told throughout different installments of the game. It's like the world you created originally. Like you're not jumping into a new world every time you're, you've left your mark. And like you can edit, like you can create multiple world states and play different ones based on different choices that you made or didn't make. You just, you can import like lots of different world states if you want. Yeah. So I just think that's a cool mechanic. He also, another example of that is like Hawk. So Dragon Age 2, your playable hero then appears to assist in Dragon Age Inquisition and then you can like edit his like story and personality through the Dragon Age keep to reflect the one you played in Dragon Age 2 so that way the the hawk who appears in Dragon Age Inquisition is as close as possible to your hawk the one you played and I just think that's cool um the games let you choose your race class and background like any RPG um, and also have various options for romancing your companions. And I do appreciate that these options get less and less heteronormative as the games go on. It's just Bioware's really got um, amazing mechanics for, for the way they structure their games. And I have a bit more on that as we go. On the note of like representation in video games, um, fantasy is a really good genre for diversity and rep representation. So there are quite a few good papers that and like theses that cover that potential within video games. I've read a lot of them, but uh, there is a, and there's also a current trend in games towards 
providing that diversity and representation. Um, but in terms of like papers and theses that discuss specifically Dragon Age, Rene Reinhold Schlager has a really good one which focuses specifically on Inquisition. Um, and they say the sexual mores of the world Bioware have created have, have created breed the sexual ethics of the studio. They just becomes a learning environment for the player, a what-if scenario in the best tradition of speculative fiction, showcasing the effects of societies based on the principle of diversity and respect for the other. Um, according to this paper, um, there is also potential for polyamorous relationships in future games as well as asexual romance. So that's actually one of the things that goes into how long it takes for a Bioware game, in terms of the Dragon Age franchise at least, to come out. It's because in order to improve their systems for Inquisition, they had to set up a whole new, like they had to use a basically a new model for the game in order to allow them to um, set up a new character modeling thing. So that way it, ha it has like quite an advanced like character modification unit, but also so that way they could um, incorporate like all the coding that goes into allowing you to have character relationships not just in terms of romance but also friendship and all those friendship arcs and there's quite a lot that goes into the development of a Dragon Age game especially after I can only imagine especially after Inquisition um, and, and its success as well so that's why it takes a while for it to come out um, and if the paper more of the paper interests you it's called Game Changes Representations of Queerness in Canadian Video, video Game Design and it's available on Google for free um, but it was really interesting. So yeah, it's just that uh, it's really good to see if games have the ability to represent diversity and be inclusive and be founded in a fantasy that doesn't necessarily reflect the kind of the shitty values of our own world, then it's kind of nice that they can and they do do that. Um, not all of them do. Yeah kind of gets on me it's sort of like the game of thrones rule it's like well you know if if you're going to represent a world and claim it's real by the fact that it has murder and rape in it then it should have the whole everything to do with human experience and if it doesn't then it's not any more real than anything else and you shouldn't say that rape and murder is what makes a world real yeah no i think I'm not familiar much with Dragon Age. I did my research this week, but I'm like, as far as video games know, go, I'm like, I'm kind of on the pulse. And like, I remember vaguely when this came out, people were very hyped for this game. And specifically, they were very hyped for that whole like new like character dynamic you have and like all the relationships you can have. Like it was a very specific, like this is a, like, we're hyped for the game. We love Dragon Age, but we were also very hyped for this as well, which is like, yeah, the demand was there and they seized it and more games should be doing it really yeah um and now we go into like world rules so we're stepping aside from like the game mechanics um into the actual world um so dragon age it's like the 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 title its concept refers to the timekeeping of the world's calendar so the games take place in the years 930 dragon and 941 dragon um and this is explained on the wiki timeline as a originating from the in-game Chantry. So the Chantry calendar measures time in ages. So the current one is the Dragon Age. And like the period before was the Blessed Age. And every age lasts approximately a century and there have been nine so far. So hence like 
Nine is nine thirty. Dragon is the ninth age, which is called Dragon Year Thirty. So that's how they measure time, and then they've named it the game after that. So the first age was called the Divine Age and was marked by the creation of the Chantry. Time periods before that are called ancient because the Chantry didn't always exist. Um, humans didn't always exist in Thetis. So just before that, they're like, nah, ancient. They're all ancient. Um, and then in the 99th year of each age, the divine looks for an event or portent or omen in order to determine the name of the new age. So the last omen was a dragon awakening and going on a rampage, which suggested an age full of violence and destruction and was therefore named after the dragon. In terms of like world rules, the ones specific to each game uh, are, in, are sort of introduced per game. So for instance, Dragon Age, Origins, so the basic rule of that game is Grey Wardens fight Darkspawn. Darkspawn are a race of humanoid tainted creatures that mostly dwell in the underground of Thetis. They are believed to be soulless. When the Darkspawn uncover one of the old gods, like we said, the dragon, but specifically a specific sort of dragon, they expose it to the taint and then change it into an archdemon, which then leads them in an attack against the surface world called the Blight. Um, the Darkspawn are perhaps the single greatest threat to Thetis. They are bloodthirsty, exceptionally numerous, and willing to indiscriminately kill or corrupt all in their path. So if, you, um, if you're like fighting a Darkspawn, you can get the taint from them, and then you basically become sort of one of them, or you die. Um, and that's unfortunately a sad fate for a lot of characters in the Dragon Age universe. Usually they're just, you know, um, NPCs. Um, but for instance, like if you're if you're me and you don't know that you could save Hawk's brother Carver in the Deep Roads, you kill him because he has the taint. And then you realize later that maybe if you brought Anders with you, he would have survived, and Hawk and Hawk oh, no. wouldn't lose his mother, his brother, and his sister in one game. Wow, you you've left some scars on that young man. Oh, yeah, I really, I really. Didn't I? I'm really sorry for Hawk in my game. I would I relish the chance to, uh, to to delete that save and be like, let's just start fresh with Hawk on the next one. He well, can be a normal is, dude. I, I did a really good job. I did some really good stuff with Hawk in that game, but I also did some really bad stuff. <laughs> um, yes, unfortunately, Hawk. Uh, my my first play of Dragon Age Origins was not, Dragon Age Two was not. Amazing. Yes. And unlike Dragon Age Inquisition, where I'm totally willing to start a new game if I fuck up uh, one thing, <laughs> I'm, I just, when I was playing two, I was just like, no, I'm going to see this to the end. And I just wore my mistakes. <laughs> bodies fell all around you. You just kept going, pushing forward. Well, yeah. I mean, bodies fall all around you in every Dragon Age game, so you just <laughs> sort of get used to it. Um, so in Dragon Age 2, you can side with the mages or the Templars. This is like the major rule of the game, is this, and it's, you can side with either the mage or the Templars, but either way you end up killing a lot of people and Knight Commander Meredith goes mad and turns into a statue. That's the primary rule of the game. <laughs> doesn't matter which which side you choose, either way people gonna die and that's gonna happen. <laughs> that's the head so, of the Templars, um, isn't it? That's the one who goes mad? Yeah. Yeah. In Kirkwall specifically, like she's the one, she's the head of the Templar order in Kirkwall. 
not in the surround. So it's like, we, we're going to give you an option, but really there is no option. It all ends badly. I mean, I mean, the th- it's always going to end badly, but the thing is like, um, and like, if you choose Templars, that's up to you. But I, I'm always very sympathetic to the mages because I usually play a mage in my first playthrough. But also I think if you participate, if you choose the Templars specifically in Dragon Age 2, you are just participating in a genocide. Because, like, you know, regardless, that Knight Commander Meredith is, is going to go mad and has been going mad and is going to turn into a statue. So, like, choosing the Templars is really just participating in killing all the mages. And I know it's a game, but I just, I'm just not into that. I'd rather, <laughs> I'd rather be the champion. I'd rather be the hero. I want to side with the people who haven't really done that much wrong. But there's a whole, like, the thing about Dragon Age is that it gets super into, like, politics and stuff in the game. So, like, it, it makes it, like, your choices then seem to have real weight because you are engaging in the political co- climate of this world at the time. Anyway, Dragon Age um, Inquisition, the major world rule is it is a cataclysmic day in Thetis and you are the Herald of Andraste. Um, the breach has been opened. It's a big hole in the sky coming through from the Fade, which is like the dream world slash dead world slash magic world. So it's bringing demons into the world from the Fade and you have no memories of how you got the green sparkly mark on your hand, but boy howdy can it close the breach and also midi Fade rifts and stop those demons. That's the rule <laughs> for that world. You, um, yeah, you don't, you don't have your memories yet, but you got a mark on your hand, close rifts, supposed to close the breach, demons. It's it's a day. Uh, you a just wake day. up one day and, and it's like suddenly you get all this responsibility. Who wants yeah, it? Yeah, pretty yeah, <laughs> yeah. Well, pretty much. The temple blows up. You wake up. You're in jail, and they're like, "What the fuck did you do?" And you're like, "I don't know. What's happened? What's happening? Why is my asleep? hand glowing?" Yeah, um, that's literally the first minute of the game. Now we're going to move on to inhabitants and society, and this is where we get sort of more into the blending of categories because we're going to sort of stack them together a little bit so um the races you can play in dragon age inquisition are human Ew. So humans are the most numerous race in thetis and can play all three classes of warrior rogue and mage humans suck elves elves are elves are they're very much based on the tolkien idea of elves so they're a humanoid race typically shorter than humans um have slender have a slender lith build larger eyes and pointed ears Long ago, they were the dominant race on Thetis, and their advanced civilization was based on nature, the Fade, and magic. So after the fall of the great city of Arlathan, uh, that's slightly off, but I can't hear the voice in my head that tells me how to pronounce all of them, um, and the empire of the Elvenon, plundered by the Tevinter Imperium, and the subsequent generations of slavery, the elves lost most of their cultural heritage and identity. Since then, the elves have been separated into two distinct groups, the Dalish, who choose to, lead a nomad, choose to lead nomadic lives and strive to keep elven culture alive rather than submit. And the city elves, who live alongside humans, usually in um, improv- like impoverished shanty towns or like, um, what's the word? Hovels. They live in like this, sh- yeah, they live in the shitty part of town. It's called um, the, the alienage. Yeah, slums, that's it. Um, and they've adopted many human customs. However, many elves are also still held as slaves within Tevinter, and many others have joined the Canarian hopes for better lives. Dwarves are another race 
again, typical sort of fantasy. The dwarves are one of the major humanoid races of the Dragon Age setting, so they're strong, stocky, and shorter than any other humanoid race. They are skilled builders and boast a long tradition of courage and martial skill that have served them well in their millennia-long battle against the Darkspawn. They had once developed a huge great empire um, underground, so it was spread across 12 great Thags that span the breadth of Thetis with its population outnumbering both humans and the elves. However, this, um, this underground city, I guess, was all but destroyed during the first blight and they are now a race in decline. And sort of there's a weird cultural thing with the dwarves is that the underground stay underground and the the land above ground the, yeah the above ground dwarves stay above ground and they're like they're not like they're not friends wow that's they don't weird. they don't really cross e- into each other's worlds um the canari um which literally means people of the cune um is an umbrella term most commonly used to describe the white-haired metallic-skinned race of large humanoids and their society that governs the islands of parvolen and saharon um, members of any race who, who adhere to the teachings of the Kune can become Kunari, but those other than the original giant race, or other than the, the, the ones who look like Kunari, that is, so humans, elves, and dwarves, are called Vidathari within the Kune. Um, humans of Ravain and the elven slaves of Tefinta are especially susceptible to conversion, although it's not unknown for other people to also go over to the Kune. Members of the Kunari race born outside of the Kune, so outside of the teachings, are not considered to be Kunari within their own society. So they're called Vashoth, which means grey ones, like those who abandoned the... And the ones who choose to leave the Kune, so born under the Kune, and then leave it are known as Talvashoth, true grey ones. Um, most Talvashoth are former soldiers and become mercenaries and are considered by Kunari to be worse than non-Kunari foreigners. Canari are generally taller and more physically robust than humans. They have skin of very varying metallic colors, such as gold, bronze, and silver, white hair, pointed ears, and eyes with vivid colors like violet, red, silver, or yellow. And most Canari have horns, but not all. I recently started a new playthrough of Dragon Age, even though I wasn't going to because I just finished one. Um, but all this talk about a Dragon Age Four is sort of <laughs> made me want to play it again. Um, and I, I've decided to be I a female Kunari rogue and I'm really enjoying that she runs a lot faster than than my elf usually does. Can, uh, it's nice to actually be able to get quicker. somewhere. Yeah exactly I can go places faster. It doesn't take me a while to cross the thing anyway. So those are the races. Um, companions in terms of the game so companions can repeat across games and also return as story characters which I've mentioned before. So your companions in Dragon Age Origins are Alistair, so he's a former Templar initiate initiate who was recruited into the Grey Wardens not long before meeting the protagonist. There's Dog, the default name of the loyal Mabari Warhound, who is a lifelong companion of a Warden from the Human Noble origin. If you play from a different origin, you have the opportunity to recruit a different Mabari Hound encountered in Ostagar, which I always do. I love having Dog as my companion. <laughs> Leliana, um, she's a bard and a cloistered sister from Olay who sought refuge in Lothering and its Chantry. She returns as the spy master in Dragon Age Origins. Um, there's Morrigan, known as Witch of the Wilds. She is a shape-shifting apostate mage who lives in the Korakari Wilds. She returns in Dragon Age Inquisition as well. 
There's Ogren, a disgraced warrior caste dwarf who has fallen into alcoholism. Sten, a Canary warrior. Wynne, a senior enchanter in the circle of Mage's Tower in Ferelden. And Zevran Arani, an elven assassin and mur- member of the notorious Antiban Crows. I love Zevran. He's one of my favourite characters. I wish he would return. He, well, he does in DA2, but only briefly. He doesn't return in Inquisition. What's so cool about him? Um, he's an oh, he's like an assassin, and he's just like sort of flirty and funny and sarcastic. And I don't know what it is about assassins who are flirty and funny and sarcastic, but I'm here for it. It is a vibe. Yeah, that's the best way to put it. He's a vibe. Um, yeah, your companions in Dragon Age Two are Anders, who I just I I don't get along with Anders. <laughs> when I play it, I'm just like, oh, I could have Anders, and I'm like, nah. So he's an apostate and former Grey Warden possessed by the Spirit of Justice. Um, Spirit possession is bad generally in Dragon Age games. It usually leads to corruption and then turning into an abomination. It's not very good. But sometimes it works out. Like there's different um, viewpoints on that. Like Dragon Inquisition is good because it sort of pushes the line that's sort of been discussed that spirits can be good with the introduction of Cole and a lot of the stuff that Solus talks about. So, like, there's different sides to it. But in Dragon Age Origins and Dragon Age 2, the belief system is mainly that spirits are bad. <laughs> so, anyway. Um, there's Aveline Valen, a soldier in King Caelan Theron's ill-fated army during the Fifth Blight. She accompanies a Hawk family to Kirkwall. Um, you can have Bethany Hawk, who is Hawk's younger sister and apostate mage. Carver Hawk, who's Hawk's younger brother, a warrior. Um, when I played the ogre at the start of the game, killed Bethany, and then Carver got the taint and I killed him to save him <laughs> from going through that. So they were not in mine. Um, Fenris is an escaped elven slave from the Tevinter Imperium, infused, infused with lyrium tattoos by his former master. You'd be insane not to have Fenris in your party because he can, like, his lyrium powers are super fucking cool and also... He's kind of grumpy, and, like, that's also a vibe. What are lyrium powers? Okay, yeah. Lyrium is a bit of a... Uh, it's it's um, it's huge in the Dragon Age universe, but it's not particularly well-defined, I suppose. So lyrium is, like, a mineral that the dwarves mine, and it can sort of give you magic powers, but not quite. Like, it's not, like, mage magic, but the, it, it, um, it can, like... For instance, like uh, Templars are known for using Lyrium to help them in their control of mages. And then in this case, Fenris can, his tattoos sort of glow and then he can like do crazy shit, like way more effectively kill people. Like he can like stab his arm through people's chests. That's cool. Like the whole way through. And like you can talk about, maybe you could say it's fantasy, and anyone can do that, but that's not true. I imagine it take a lot of force to stab your arm through someone's chest, so you know. <laughs> but yeah, it's it's sort of so like, lyrium and lyrium potions can be used by mages to replenish your basically like your MP, your mana, so like your stamina, the stuff you use to cast spells. So it's like a, it's it's both a game mechanic and a an issue within the world because there's also red lyrium which comes up a lot more in dragon age inquisition but it's also in dragon age 2 and that can affect your mind like that can send you crazy if you're around too much of it so it's like it's a bit its actual properties 
are a bit varied and the way it's used is a bit varied, but it's basically just like a an ore that they mine. From what little I know, was the head Templar's sword made out of Yes, lyrium? made out of red lyrium. Okay, yep. that makes sense. That all it's all fitting into place. Yeah. Yeah, so that's why she went crazy and then turned into a statue because she basically called she because you can sort of like it's like you can charge up lyrium items it's like i mean most no hero that we've met so far has used anything to do with red red lyrium your job is inquisition if you take the quest from varric is to destroy it wherever you find it but you can basically sort of charge it up and that's what she did she charged it up too much and she turned to stone um your other companions include isabella who's a free-spirited pirate captain and smuggler She's shipwrecked and stranded in Kirkwall. She was pretty cool, but I made some bad decisions with her and she left. Oh, no. <laughs> yeah. Um, there's Meryl, a Dalish mage, who's also a, who also uses blood magic, which is a bit iffy. There's Varric Tethrus, who returns as a companion in Inquisition and is one of my fave characters. So he's a dwarf rogue and member of the Merchant Guilds. He's Guild. He's a consummate storyteller. So there's this ongoing thing that after he... After he finishes being the companion of Hawk, he writes all these novels about Hawk and, like, their gang, and then he publishes them. But they're, like, lurid romance. Like, some of them are, like, like you know, just embellishments of the quests they went on, but some of them are, like, lurid romance novels. I like him. About his former companions. He's really cool. He's my kind of um, guy. Yeah, and he's a really good companion to have in Inquisition. Um, in Dragon Age Inquisition, you can have Blackwall, who's a Grey Warden of Olay, except he's not. Spoilers for Inquisition if you haven't played it. Blackwall is not a Grey Warden. He stole the identity of a Grey Warden and then pretended to be one so that way you could invoke uh, Grey Warden treaties. And then, like, if you play out his friendship arc, you can, like, eventually you're going to get a quest where he reveals that he lied um, and you have to decide. Like, you can either decide to leave him or you can decide to bring him back to your fortress for judgment, in which case you can say, like, you know, you told us you're a Grey Warden, so you're going to go be one. And I consider that's what I did because I was like, well, that's fair. You said you're a Grey Warden, so you're going to go join them. And also it spares his life, which, you know, I'm not in for killing any of my companions. As Believe what you will about Dragon Age 2, but in Inquisition, I'm everyone's <laughs> best friend. I I wouldn't want to pretend to be a Grey Warden. A lot of responsibility that you may not be able to carry out if you're not actually yeah. a Grey Warden. Yeah, right? Yeah. <laughs> um, Yes, it's a very ballsy lie. Um, There's Cassandra Pentecost, who is the right hand of the divine and one of the last loyal members of the Seekers of Truth. So she's um, a Chantry member and also the Seekers of Truth are sort of like Templar adjacent. They're like a separate member of, separate group of Templars. She's pretty cool. Um, Cole is one of my favorites. Cole is a mysterious ghost-like rogue. So he's a spirit, but if you make, again, if you follow his sort of friendship arc, you can either, um, let him remain a spirit or you can encourage him to become more human and grow. And he's, he's cool. Um, there's Dorian Pavis, who's an altus mage from the Tevinter Imperium. So like, it's the first time we've had representation from the people who are generally bad, um, and who keep slaves, but trying to, but like a, a member of their society trying to do good and change things. So that was interesting. And I like Dorian. He's he's sarcastic and witty. There's the Iron Bull, who I imagine would be your favorite character, Morgan, or if only because he's voiced by Freddie Prince Jr. 
like aka Canaan. Um, it is very confusing though because Iron Bull is a pansexual flirt, so it's very strange to have Canaan saying certain things to you, and you're like, "Why are you doing this? You're basically my dad." Who's to say Canaan isn't a pansexual flirt? That's true. We only get a very limited view of him. Yeah, and his relationship in the show is like it's there, but they're also like they're kind of they, they don't focus on it. So you're like, "Are no. they? Are they not?" I think they are. And it's like, oh, they are. But are they? I don't know. <laughs> that's Rebels talk. Let's move on. Yeah. Okay. So Iron Bull is a Canari mercen- mercenary and, a, and an agent of the Ben Hasrath, which are like Canari, is a Canari spy network. So he originally joins to like spy on you. But then you can, um, across his storyline, you can encourage him to save his men over following the Kune. And then he leaves the Kune and becomes Talvashoth and, and leaves the Ben Hasrath. And then he sort of just is a mercenary. And honestly, I think he's living a better life for it. Yeah, sounds like it. There's Sarah, an elven archer, a member of the enigmatic group of rogues known as the Friends of Red Jenny. The Friends of Red Jenny come up with various quests across, I think, all three games. So they're just like a group of like shady people who who leave you notes to do quests to like help people. There's Solas, who's an apostate elven mage and expert on the Fade. He has a much bigger role in the game than is initially thought but he's also one of the first characters you meet along with Varric um as I said Varric returns um and then there's Vivian a loyalist circle mage and first enchanter of Montsamard as well as the enchantress to the imperial court of Alay so she's a high ranking mage she can get you in places I usually play Dragon Age Inquisition with Iron Bull as my warrior, Dorian as my mage, and then I swap Cole and Varric in and out as my rogue because I like them both. So like I'll take one on one quest and then I'll swap it out for the other one on the next quest. So I want to feel like they're both they're they're both important. They're both to the part game. of the game. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I was like, I mean, I you can just follow their friendship arcs without taking them on quests, but I'm like that just seems kind of rude. <laughs> so I'll take you both out. But we'll swap in and out. That seems like the fair thing to do. Hmm. Um, Of course, you can also romance a number of characters. um, But if you want to know more about that, you can play the game and do what you do. Um, Other notable inhabitants include a variety of demons and spirits, darkspawn, and lots of bears. If you've played Inquisition, you'll know that there's lots of bears. The big bad in Inquisition is Corypheus. So he's an ancient darkspawn who was trapped inside a grey warden prison prison, and was previously, as in when he was alive, a magister of the Tevinter Imperium. Magisters are members of the Magisterium, the upper house of the Tevinter Imperial Senate. Like many in Tevinter, they are also heavily involved in the elven slave trade, which tells you everything you need to know. However, the architect of Corypheus's introduction to the game we will save for mythology because there's more. There's a lot more to to Corypheus's involvement in Inquisition than you were led to believe at the start. Do they? So like they were a person, and then they did turn into Darkspawn, and but they're not like mindless. They they have drives. They have personality. They have. So like there are different ranks of Darkspawn, and um, some of them are sentient and some aren't. So like you get you like emissaries who are. Darkspawn mages are way more powerful and they have like cunning. And then there are like elements of Darkspawn that they retain something of what they were. So like Corypheus is like 
because he like because he has magic it allows him to sort of retain who he is even though he becomes a darkspawn and it's like sort of like a there's a because he's from Tevinter like the amount that the amount that the exposure to the taint was accidental is probably unlikely like he probably was doing it on purpose yeah to attain some sort of thing because Tevinter is known for um, it's a bit more lax in terms of its laws on blood magic, which could be a good or bad thing. Blood magic can lead to abominations, but it can also like some of it could be useful. Like and like they like the game's like mm, blood magic bad, but necromancy's okay. So like you know weird line to draw. <laughs> but there's there's like yeah there's the the standards are a bit wishy washy. And they get more wishy washy in Tevinter. So like the dark the yeah, the darkspawn is like normally becoming if you're normal and become a darkspawn, you're not gonna retain sentience. But if you're connected to magic or you're messing around in magic or you're doing rituals, like the chances that you'll become something slightly different and therefore retain sentience is more likely. So, like, the exact amount that Corypheus is a darkspawn is more to do with the corruption than it is to do with his relation to other darkspawn, if that makes sense. Like, he can control other darkspawn. Yeah. He's, yeah. he's, like, something else but comes from the same root, I guess, <laughs> if that helps. I think I get it. Yeah. There's so much. There's just so much. Um, so we're going now into society and history, a bit of both. Um, so the Order of the Templars. So the Templar Order in Dragon Age is a military order of the Chantry that hunts abominations, so mages who have been possessed by demons, and apostates, mages who don't belong to a circle. And then they also police the mages in the circle of mages. So mages live in towers called circles and they're not allowed to leave. Templars are officially deemed a force of defenders by the Chantry. The advocates claim they are saviors, holy warriors, protectors of the innocent and champions of all that is good. However, um, others see them as symbols of the Chantry's control over magic with a religious fervor that inspires absolute devotion to their mandate rather than moral principles, hence the genocide that sort of happens in Dragon Age 2. Um, their roles are to protect the community of the faithful from magical threats, protect mages from the populace, and subdue any who refuse to submit to the authority of the circle. Originally, they were a bit more like the Inquisition in having a goal to protect humanity from all bad stuff, as opposed to just being the magic police. But now, in Dragon Age Inquisition, you know, the, their, their mandate to protect people from magic has gone so far that it's led them into open conflict. Templars use lyrium to enhance themselves in their fight against magic and often suffer from lyrium addiction because lyrium's bad. Generally, it's, it's a bad thing. Um, in extreme cases of circle corruption, Templars can request the right to purge all mages within the circle, which is also what happens in Dragon Age 2. This is called the right of annul annulment, they kill all the mages. It's super fucked up stuff. Um, and I don't, do not approve of that. But it's also something I think that comes up in Origins. I think it's mentioned at least, but you can stop it from happening. I think 
it's been it's a while probably since the I've right played decision Origins. to make. Yeah, it's not it's not great. Um, the Circle of Mages. So the Circle of Mages is the dominant organization for the training of mages within the nations of Thetis. So in the south, so like Ferelden and Olay, it has traditionally been governed and monitored by the Chantry and also guarded and supervised by the Templar Order. We sort of mentioned that above. In the Tevinter Imperium, they're governed by high-ranking magisters. So basically anyone who has any magical ability, except for the dwarves who have no magic, and the Dalish who train their own, mag- who train their own mages, has, a, has to join a circle or they're going to be hunted by the Templars and labelled apostates. After they've been trained, they undergo a trial called the Harrowing where they enter the Fade, which is, like I said, the, the dream world-ish slash place of magic slash soul world. It's a bit of a murky definition of a place. Um, and then they have to face a demon there. The only other option is to be made tranquil, which is a ritual to cut off the mage from the Fade and thereby magic. And it also removes all emotions and ability to feel, so it's pretty horrific. Oh, like you basically sucks. get a magic lobotomy. It's really bad. There are like yeah, there's some choices in the Dragon Age games that I'm just like, why? Um, that's not good. <laughs> um, Tevinter circles are slightly different in that instead of being prisons for mages, they're more like magic universities. Because Tevinter has slightly different rules on what qualifies as magic and what is bad magic and what is good magic. So they get to have a bit more of a fun time in the circle as opposed to bad times. Fair enough. Can't leave your room times. Um, so the Chantry is the dominant religious organization in Thetis. It is based on the Chant of Light, which is a series of teachings, teachings written by Andraste, the prophet of the Maker. And it was founded by Cordelius Draken, the first emperor, emperor of Olay. Um, the Chantry's followers are known as Andrastians. The Maker, also referred to as the Maker of the World and the Wellspring of All, is the deity they worship. He is referred to as male, and the prophetess Andraste, who is in, who basically made the transfery, like she's she's the myth they base all their worship on, is considered to be his wife. Um, while the chantry believes that the maker is all powerful and created all things, they also believe that he has turned away from them. The chantry believes this is because of the faults of his creations, so he will not answer prayers, grant wishes, or do anything of the sort until humanity proves itself worth, worthy of his attention again, which I think is pretty pretty fucked up in itself yeah. as well. Um, yeah, it's, it's very much a god does not care about you. And yeah, they basically worship sort of Andraste in conjunction to the maker. So all their, all their like rhetoric about worship is directed towards Andraste as an extension of the maker. So like they tend to refer to Andraste more than they refer to the maker within the games. But Sounds yeah. like they've got daddy issues. Yeah, religious organizations in fantasy always have issues, whether whether they be daddy or or otherwise. There's just issues. Okay, so now we're going straight into proper history as opposed to history mixed with other bits. So um, the ones that relate to the game are the Fifth Blight. So the Fifth Blight occurred in 930 Dragon in the nation of Ferelden. The Blight's origins began with the tainting of the old god Eruthmiel, a dragon. <laughs> the Darkspawn rabble organized into an army under the Archdemon's banner and launched their attack upon the surface. In the beginning of Dragon Age Origins, you are taken to Ostagar. Shortly after this becomes apparent, regardless of your backstory, and you become a Grey Warden. In the ensuing battle against the Darkspawn, the Grey Wardens and the King of Ferelden at the time are betrayed and left for dead, 
leaving only you and Alistair alive. The betrayer Logan then usurps the throne and starts a civil war in the middle of a blight. Um, you then go Terrible around timing. gaining right. You then go around gaining loyalties to depose Logan and then fight the blight because no one can fight the blight while they're too busy dealing with that shit. So you basically just go around the world and go like, "Will you help us depose Logan?" And then they go, "Yeah." And then you go and you go to Logan and you're like, "Fuck you." And then you sort of have to decide whether or not um, you you can let him become a Grey Warden, in which case he can kill the Archdemon and you survive, or you can kill him, or you can, I don't know if there's a third option, but the main ones are that like you kill him or he can join you. If he joins you, Alistair is going to leave, and Alistair was my best friend. Or if you, like, if you kill him, either you volunteer Alistair to die killing the Archdemon, or you die killing the Archdemon, or you have sex with Morrigan and let that let the Archdemon's soul go into go into the unborn child you just. No, uh, I heard something about that. That sounded weird. Yeah, and I was like, none of these are good options. So I was like, I love you, Alistair, but I'm going to ask Logan to join us so he can sacrifice himself so I live and you live. It's better for everyone. Even if we're not friends afterwards. If if you're really good at sort of mastering all the dynamics in the game that let you make certain choices. You can marry Alistair to Anora, who is Logan's daughter. No, yeah, Logan's daughter and the wife of the former king. And therefore he becomes a ruler and she becomes a ruler and you solve a lot of problems and also he doesn't die. But like I'm I was not like you heard about my <laughs> how bad I was at keeping like Hawk's family alive and two. I was not when I played Origins, I was not good enough to do that. <laughs> I was just like, I don't want anyone to die. So Bye, Alistair. Sorry. Actually, I think in my first playthrough, I did actually choose to sleep with Morrigan so that way we could all live. And then I felt so bad for making that decision that I immediately played it again and changed it because I just couldn't <laughs> live with myself. <laughs> Having done that, I was like, no, that was a bad decision. That's bad magic. <laughs> if only you could do that in real life. Yeah. Can't make a decision twice. No. Um, the fifth blight then culminates in the Battle of Dem- Denerim where the Archdemon is then slain by the Wardens at the top of Fort Draken. It is then canonically the shortest in history, stopped before it had a chance to gain its full momentum. And you become a hero, whether you live or you die. Another reason that I don't like it when they're like, you can you can be the hero who kills the Archdemon if you want and die. And I'm like, okay, but you let me romance someone. <laughs> and if I, and I've romanced them, and they've basically proposed to me and you're asking me to go and die now? And I'm like, I'm not going to do that. That's so mean. A true hero would do it. I know, but I'm not a true hero. I'm selfish. <laughs> I want I want my heroes to live happily ever I after. want my cake and eat it too. <laughs> exactly. I want to be called a hero and also be alive to see it. <laughs> the Mage Rebellion is a main one in Dragon Age 2 and then it's Fallout in Dragon Age Inquisition. So the Mage Templar War, um, also referred to as the Mage Rebellion, broke out in 940 Dragon between the Mages and the Templars after the decision of the Fraternities Conclave to separate the Circle of Mages from the Chantry. Contributing early events include the 937 Rebellion in Kirkwall, which you take part in in Dragon Age 2. So your actions in Kirkwall, the fact that like the fallout that happens and you can't avoid immediately reverberates into the rest of the world and changes everything so like your participation in that 
specifically then affects things in Dragon Age Inquisition. Um, so in Dragon Age 2, the Knight Commander of Kirkwall's Templars, Meredith, assumes control of the city, inciting discont discontent among, among both the citizens and then the mages. So Meredith's sanctions against the mages became increasingly harsh over the years while members of the nobility began to object to her rule of the city, many wishing for Hawk, the city's champion, to become Viscount. Which you can do. I didn't because I didn't side with the Templars. <laughs> Not going to happen. Uh, Meredith's sanctions against the mages were strongly opposed by the first enchanter Orsino, who publicly declaimed the knight enchanter and believed Meredith was losing her mind. Spoilers, she was. And as a companion in Dragon Age 2 declared that he would no longer allow the Templars to persecute mages and cause an explosion that destroyed the Kirkwall Chantry and killed all of those inside, the clan cleric Oof. included, thus removing any possibility of compromise. Another reason I can't support Anders because I know that he's going to blow up the Chantry. I'm like, why? Why? That's not the answer. Um, furthermore, as Anders did not contain the explosion, deadly debris from the blast also rained over half of Kirkwall, creating more chaos. So... Nice one, yeah, Anders. Anders, that wasn't a very good decision, mate. No. I mean, he was also possessed by a spirit of justice who was like, <sighs> like yeah. an angry spirit of justice who was like, no, it's your duty to like fix this. So, like, who cares what the yeah. consequences yeah. are? Just do it. And like, it's, it, it was bad. It was a bad situation, but I don't think adding bombing into it was going to help. And it didn't. No. Um, Acts of domestic terrorism never really help. No. Meredith then invokes the right of annulment. And the player, as Hawk has to pick a side, everything turns to shit. I chose mages because I almost always play as a mage. And also, if you, yeah, basically, if you choose Templars, you're really just taking part in a massacre of mostly innocent people. Um, I mean, it's a game. It is a game. But, like, I'm like, oh, I don't really want to play my game like that. I, I'm not, I'm also not one of those people who chooses, like, the angry options in dialogues. And I'm not the person who chooses, like, violence for violence sake i know it's a game and i can do whatever i want but i i always like no i just want to be everyone's friend i want to be your best yeah. friend yeah. i really don't like when the game tricks you and you think you're saying the right thing and then they that comes out wrong and you're like yeah and then they're mad at you it's like i didn't mean that <laughs> i'm trying to be nice yeah um the confrontation ends with lots of mages and templars dead and the knight commander getting turned into a statue because she draws too much power from a dumb red lyrium sword um, further confrontation sparks and the situation devolves into an all-out war. These then play out into Inquisition. Um, so in Inquisition, you are directly dealing with the fallout of the Mage and Templar War and you can choose to support the Mages or the Templars in that. It's not as a, like, it's not as a divisive decision as it is in Dragon Age 2 because you're not, there's no, like, it's not dealing with sort of like the right of an element. You're not necessarily contributing to all like, or mage extinction, but that being said, I've yet to choose the Templars, like I said, I'm just, I'm a mage sympathizer, I'll usually pick the mages, but now that I'm playing a, a Canary Rogue, I'll probably choose the Templars and see how that goes, but I just don't, it's, it's just like a, I feel bad for them, mages get a bit of a bum rap. Elven history is really important to Inquisition, so regardless of what race you play in Inquisition, it's so important to the world building of the game, because of the history of Corypheus as a magister in connection with the Tevinter Imperium, and also because of Solus. Spoilers to come in mythology. Like, we'll get there. But Solus is, there's more to Solus than you think. Um, it takes the entire game to get there, though. Um, so before humans came to Thetis, the elves were immortal and had a great civilization. 
Supposedly, when the elves found out that the very presence of humans or Shemlin in their language or quicklings caused the once immortal elves to age and die, they attempted to isolate themselves. Many believes that the gods had judged them unworthy of their long lives and cast them down to, to live like humans. Um, as the human Tevinter Imperium rose to power, they then moved to conquer Arthalan, which was an elven city. Um, according to the Dalish, when the city was breached, their ancestors chose to flee rather than fight. Elves were then enslaved by the Tevinter Imperium. During their centuries of slavery, they lost most of their language, history, and the worship of the old elf elven gods declined. However, eventually the elves led by Shartan fought alongside Andraste in her fight against the Imperium, and their reward was a new home in the Dales. However, that didn't last long. Eventually, the country was like, nah, fuck those elves, we're going to march on them. And they basically had to keep um, a nomad nomadic lifestyle because they can't settle down anywhere because eventually humans are going to be like, no, get the fuck off our land, even though it's not their land. But that's basically human history in a nutshell, isn't it? Yeah, it sucks. <laughs> yeah. However, it is revealed in Inquisition that the elves didn't lose their Im immortality because of the appearance of humans on the scene, but because fucking Solus made the veil which separates Thetis from the Fade, which ripped all their elvish shit in two, and it just really noodled their whole game. I, like, it's just... I don't really understand what you just said, to be honest. Okay, okay. So, like, the Fade is a... We've talked about it a bit before, but... The Fade is like the dream world slash world of cells slash magic world that is separated from the actual world of Thetis. You access it in your dreams and mages pull on it to use their magic. It was once a part of the world, but then Solith, who will, his real identity we will get to very soon, separated the Fade from the real world, hence instituting the world that we now know as Thetis. And elves, whose entire society was based on the use of the Fade's magic, ripped in two. And like I said, really noodled their whole game. All right. Noodles. I love it. I, you, come on, Morgan. you got to know that that expression isn't that bad. Yeah, <laughs> noodled it. It noodled it, Morgan. Fucking straight noodled it. It was good and then he noodled it. <laughs> I'm sure we'll find out why very soon. We will. Um. On a personal note, I prefer my fantasy worlds to be better than the one we live in, hence why the like the representation that um, Dragon Age has is really good. However, the whole slavery thing that is in this and also Star Wars is just really not my jam because like, if we're going to have a fantasy world, like I understand that there needs to be conflict and structures in place, but generally I would prefer those conflict and structures to not involve really bad things that we've done like I would prefer that if I'm going to have a fantasy world to escape to it doesn't have slavery in it yeah like we invented that in real life but like great. can't we have a world where humans were like never thought of it yeah just never right? crossed their mind yeah they never thought of it it and yeah it was just oh it's just me I mean yeah I, I mean it's the same thing I don't particularly like I don't really like the idea of grim, grim, dark, real fantasy that people talk about Game of Thrones and stuff like that. Because I just don't think it reflects the good parts of what fantasy can do. Fantasy, it can take you to a different world with different rules. So why do those rules have to be, well, we love to rape and murder and enslave people. It's our favorite thing. Um, so yeah, but you know, you, you 
in terms of like that, Dragon Age is pretty good because it does give you lots of representation and diversity. It's just that some of the world structures are not necessarily my favorite thing. All right, languages. There's not that many, surprisingly. So there's English yeah, because it's a, a game. Short list. There's some Elvish. There's not a lot, but they do sometimes speak in Elvish. Um, there's some, I can't remember how to pronounce it, but it's it's Kunlot or whatever. The Canary language, not much. There's some Tevinta and Ancient Tevin, I think. I don't, aside from Dorian calling you, like when you romance him, he calls you like my heart or something in Tevinta. Aside from that, I don't think there's any spoken, but there is some written because there's a lot of like, because of the connection with Corypheus, there's a lot of like codexing that has to do with Tevinta and ancient Tevinta. So there's some of that, I'm pretty sure as well. Now we get to mythology, lore, and legend. And again, we just don't, there's just no room for stuff from our world to to make it into this. So it's all stuff from, from Dragon Age. So like, if that's not your thing, I'm sorry, <laughs> give up now because we're just going to keep going. Um, if you've made so it this mytholo- far, like. Yes, yeah, right. <laughs> yes. So the mythology base that plays a big part in Inquisition and therefore its focus for this episode is the Elven Pantheon, also known in Elven as the Evanaris. So they, it comprises, so the Evanaris are the names, like the collective name for the gods. As Dorian says in the game, it basically sort of just means great mage. So he's like, oh, they were basically magisters. So basically they were gods. They were they were very powerful elves who were worshipped as gods, but chances are they weren't actual gods. So it comprised, the actual pantheon comprises five gods and four goddesses who in the modern uh, daily shelves call the creators. The pantheon is led by Elganan, the Allfather, God of Fatherhood and Vengeance, and Mithal, the Protector, Goddess of Motherhood and Justice. There are also references in the Elven mythology to another race of gods called the Forgotten Ones, who are the enemies of the Elven Pantheon. It is said that Fen Harel was the only one able to walk freely between the two clans, and they both thought of him as one of their own. There are very, very similar structures in this mythology to a lot of commonly known, I would say, Western mythology. So like the idea of having a pantheon is, you know, you get that in Greek and Roman and Norse mythology, the setup of having, you know, the father and then the mother at the head, also extremely common. But then also you get like the ones who are able to cross over. So like Loki is an example of that in Norse mythology, who is one of the Aesir, but can, can move between different clans of gods as well. Um, so it's sort of borrowing a lot from from those structures. So the Elven Pantheon has the following gods. So as I said, there's Elganan, also known as the Allfather, very Norse, the eldest of the son, and he overthrew his father, very Greek. He represents fatherhood and vengeance and leads the Pantheon with the goddess Mithal. Mithal is the protector and the all-mother and the goddess of love. She is the patron of motherhood and justice and leads the Pantheon with her male com- counterpart, Elganan. There's Fallon Din. Um, he is the elven god of death and fortune and guides the dead to the beyond. He and his twin brother Dirthamon are the eldest children of Elganan, the Allfather, and Mithal, the Protector. Dirthamon is the twin brother of Fallon Din and is the elven god of secrets and knowledge and master of the ravens' fear and deceit. Ravens, 
I mean, it's not it's not Hugo and immune in thought and memory, but it's similar. <laughs> Dertherman gave to the elves the gift of knowledge and taught them loyalty and faith in family. Andriel is the elven goddess of the hunt, also known as blood and force and the great hunter. Salaise is the hearth keeper, so very um, Hestia vibes from Greek mythology. So she's the goddess of all domestic arts and the sister of Andriel the huntress. Salaise gave the elves fire and taught them how to weave rope and thread and to use herbs and magic for healing purposes. Uh, June is the master of elven crafts. His um, direct compatriot for me would be, um, you can either say Vulcan or Hephaestus, so from Greek and Roman mythology. I'm sure he has a Norse counterpart as well, I just can't think of it. Um, he is variously described as either a brother to Andriel and Salaise or Salaise's husband. He has taught the elves to make bows, arrows, and knives to hunt Andriel's gifts. Very useful. Then there's Gilanan. So Gilanan is called the mother of the Hala. So they're like white deer-like creatures that are very plentiful in Thetis and they're revered by the Dalish and used to pull their land ships, which are like boats with wheels, with sails that carry their stuff from place Weird. to place. They're pretty cool, actually. Their designs are really cool. Um, and she's also the goddess of navigation, so that makes a lot of sense. And spoilers at last, we got there. The Dread Wolf is, or Fen Haral, is an enigmatic trickster god of the elves who supposed betrayal of both the benevolent creators and the Forgotten Ones is the only explanation most elves have for the destruction of Al- Alathan, the Elvish city. Dalish clans view him with wariness and seek to protect themselves from and their king from his treachery. So he's not worshipped in the traditional way. Um, it is revealed by Solus in Mathal's temple in Inquisition that this could be a misinterpretation from the Dalish and instead he was a god of rebellion. And Solus would know because he is in fact Fen Haral, the dread wolf. And he gave the orb to Corypheus, which opened the breach and the betrayal is real so basically the whole reason inquisition happens is because he couldn't unlock his orb so he gave it to corypheus and it didn't kill him in the tent instead it tore a hole in the sky so nice one he was my bestie we shared dreams in the fade we had philosophical discussions i let him bore me with his thesis on spirits which I pressed X over and over again to make it go faster, but I do that with everything. And then he cuts off my hand to stop it from killing me because the mark is spreading and tells me he's found Haral in the horniest outfit anyone have, anyone has worn in the game, even Dorian. You should look up the outfit. It's just... it's a, like he's, he's wearing like these schlumpy apostates robes the entire time, and then when he's ready to tell you he's found Haral, he's in like gold dragon scale armor with like a fur cuff and it's just like are you looking to get it like what's going on here is i don't understand is he bad is he good is he more of like a chaotic neutral it hasn't been revealed yet so like that's why the next game is going to be so exciting because as it's as i've said it's tentatively titled the dread wolf rises so hopefully we'll see more of solace his his aim he states in inquisition is to basically repair the damage he did to the elves because he sees himself as, and he sort of is, responsible for their entire loss of culture. And he doesn't, I mean, he cares. It depends on, like, whether or not he's your friend. He was my friend, and I said, you know, I'm going to, 
I'm going to show you that this isn't right. And he's like, I'd love to be shown that I'm not right. But anyway, <laughs> but I'm going to do it anyway. Um, he in he basically doesn't see the modern elves in Thetis as elves. Like he, he they have no connection to their culture and history. They, they're not the elves that, that they, they're not, like they're not what they should be. That's what he sees them as. And he sees the what he did to the the veil in creating the veil to separate the fate. He sees that as the cause of it. So he wants to undo it to return the elves to what they should be. I guess. Yeah, but that it's sounds not, good. That's noble. But of course, in doing that, it will completely destroy the world of Thetis as everyone knows it. <laughs> well, you know, uh, quid pro quo. Quid pro. But the thing pro, is, like, quo. they don't get anything. Like, if he does this. That's sort of it for them. Like there's a, there's a heavily implied thing that they probably won't survive the transition. It's 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 a bit. It again, it's not fully fleshed out because it's only revealed at the end of the game. But it is really it's a reveal really worth the wait. It was so good the first time I played it. I was like, oh, and it's not actually even really in. Like you have to have Trespasser, which is an extension to the game, but worth getting. Um, that's when you get sort of all the solar stuff. But it's. If yeah. if he's not like part of your party for like any of the game, he just rocks up at the end. You're like, oh, I vaguely remember you. So he's always there. Basically, all your companions stay in your camp, and then you select the ones who want to go oh, out you just, with you. Yeah, take them. And then you during the game, anytime like you can go up and talk to them and have discussions, and that will confer your relationship, which can then trigger quests that you can do with them, which then builds your relationship more. And like the first few game, like the first two games have a clearly visible approval system. So like in the first game, if you talk to them, if you do your quests and you give them gifts, it raises your approval. And that's also how you initiate romances. In the second game, it's the same thing. Gifts, conversations, quests, you approve, like you get approval or you become rivals. And Dragon Age Inquisition focus has the same sort of thing, except you can't actually see your approval meter. It will say, like, if you say, like, for instance, if you listen to Solus talk about his thesis on spirits, it will say, like, when you ask him questions, it will say, Solus slightly approves, or Solus approves, or Solus greatly approves. But it doesn't actually show your approval meter, so you don't know where you actually are in your relationship. The only thing you can judge is his reactions to you and other Just characters' like reactions real to life. you. Yeah. Yeah. So I forgot where I was going before I was talking about the approval system. I was answering your question. I can't remember what it was. But yeah, um, the approval system is sort of what initiates all the relationship building. And then if even if you don't have a like an established approval relationship with Solus, like even if you don't work on that relationship, like you never talk to him, that reveal will still be there. It's just that, for instance, if you chose the option... So, like, there are two options you can choose to say to him when he's like, I'm going to do this. I feel like I have to, whatever, blah, 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 reasoning. And you're like, this is bullshit. Um, you can you have two options of what to say. You can, like, say, I'm going to save you. I'm going to convince you that this is wrong. Or you say, I'm going to kill you before you destroy the world. And then he has two different responses to that as well. Um, but you're... <laughs> You're probably, if you haven't really established that relationship, you're probably not going to be like, I'm going to save you. You're just going to kill <laughs> You're probably going to be like, I'm going to kill you. But of course you don't in the game. Like he's, 
he just like he say he saves you your arm from being eaten by the mark by chopping it off basically and then he walks walks away and leaves yeah i assume you don't kill him because the next game is potentially titled after him (laughs) yeah but you know it's like you know there's no resolution to that particular storyline and therefore there's no resolution to like what we know about fen because it's revealed in inquisition that what the dalish thought they knew is probably completely wrong um but yeah it's it was such a good reveal um but yeah it's just solace the betrayal i just mm, he got me like we were best friends <laughs> i was like how dare you i'm gonna <laughs> save you but how dare you and he's like, he like, there's like these moments in the, like prior, like way before you get to the bit in Trespasser where he's like, I'm going to destroy the world or whatever, where like you have like this one cutscene moment and you're at your like fortress skyhold and you're just tra- talking to him and like you're having a conversation. If you pick the right ones, you can get like Sola slightly approves or whatever. So I'm picking the right ones. And he's like, he like, he admits, he's like, you're, you know, closer to... Like, you're, he sort of says, like, you're better than the elves are now. Like, you're sort of closer to what they should be. And I'm like, like, when you play the game and then he betrays you and I'm like, but you said, I was like, you said I was closer. I was like, why can't you just, <laughs> why can't you just settle for me? <laughs> like, yeah, it's just like, I just can't wait for the next game. Just soon. I'm maybe. really going to fuck up Solus's shit. I'm really going to noodle his shit. <laughs> anyway. Um, we now have philosophy and worldview. I really don't have much for this section because we talked about so much of the game in previous sections. I just have like two more quotes from um, the paper that I quoted earlier because there's um, some really good summing up of the complexities of the game. So like one of the, uh, one of the quotes is um, taking its ethical framework beyond questions of sexuality and gender. The game openly includes other touchy subjects such as euthanasia, addiction, religious fanaticism, colonialism, and the political game, um, in inverted commas, in a serious, responsible, and differentiated manner. So I included that because it does, (laughs) it's a distillation of all all the things that we're sort of covering in like a sentence. So like the game is... It's very well realized, and like yeah, you in in the Winter Palace, you play the political game, you know the the court game. You participate in court intrigue, and it covers all these difficult subjects in quite like they're not perfect ways, but in in ways that treat them with respect and sort of try to open a dialogue about those things. And I think that's really cool for a game to do. If you're going to be experiencing a world on this scale, it should it should include some some you know touchy subjects. Obviously, I'm not a big fan of the slavery aspect, but you know, I think that it's good that it does discuss things. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, yeah. It, it, it it allows us to explore them in a different setting, which may be helpful. I think yes, and also in a, in a different person like you become the hero of the story which means that like and like it it sort of allows you to educate yourself on certain things in ways that you probably wouldn't seek out in normal life for instance there is a transgender character in the game and it does allow you the game 
does allow you to ask questions about that, like what, and obviously you get the character's backstory, but it does give you a bit more education on what that is like to be. And like, that's not necessarily something that some gamers or people would ever necessarily get to experience in real life because for, for various reasons, they may not seek it out. They may not have the opportunity, but at least in, in the world of the game, because that's included, people can learn a little bit more about what it's like to experience different things and different ways of being. I always think that's good. It's a game, like, so it's, it's safe, but it's also like, and therefore it, it has no, like, no real excuse to not be progressive, especially because it's fantasy. Anyway, my other quote is Inquisition also exemplifies how the Bioware way implicitly puts a stronger focus on interpersonal relationships over more traditional interactive opportunities in video games, such as combat and puzzle solving. Every companion character has a friendship arc and the player can build relationships by having their character interact with them, making decisions in line with their respective worldviews. And then I've written hashtag friendship. Because that's another great thing about the game is that it does focus so heavily on building relationships with your companions and like your community within the game. So like everyone, if you talk to them enough, is got like can be your friend and can give you a quest and you can help them further their own stories. Um, and I just think that is way more interesting. And like you can also derail them. You can become enemies with the people who come to your to your fortress. <laughs> I never have, but it's an option. So, like, um, I think it's way more interesting playing a game as opposed to, like, solving puzzles or just doing combat is that you have to navigate, like, not just, like, relationships, but also, like, politics. Like, the, you get to sit in judgment. You get to judge prisoners and decide whether they're to be executed or whether they go into exile, whether they, you know, serve their sentence helping their community. So it's just more interesting navigating the, like, the web of, of Thetis than just being like, I mean, I enjoy Breath of the Wild, which is what I'm actually playing right now, but it is just a lot of shrines and puzzles. Anyway, that's actually the end of um, everything except for my recommendations and just like a little... Um, statement I've written at the end so if you're happy Ooh, we'll go right statement. into recommendations what are we recommending this episode so clearly I recommend all of these games even the older ones uh, I know Origins was like 2009 and like it, it does look it but it's actually pretty good despite that um, and it's I would still recommend it it's pretty fun it's quite short too so you can blast through it in an afternoon if you really want to I definitely have um Inquisition is one of my favorite open world games, although we all know how I feel about Assassin's Creed Odyssey. I would say that Inquisition is probably on par, if not if not like slightly more for me, just because it, it's got a bit of a it's got a bit more option to it, whereas Odyssey has a bit is a bit more constrained in what they're offering. Um, and if if you haven't played any Dragon Age um, and like especially Inquisition, but you know, and you've listened to this and you're interested, but you're not quite sure. Um, if you want to see some of what it's like, there is a Monster Factory episode on YouTube that has an epi like that has an episode on it, and it's really entertaining. So, thank you to the McElroy brothers for doing that. It means that 
it's, and it's it means that people can know what Dragon Age Inquisition is like to a degree because they do fuck around a lot as opposed to actually playing the game but it's a fun way of finding out what it's like and it's a funny video so I do recommend um again if you're looking for real history on the Templars see Dan Jones we've recommended him before if you're looking for a book with a similar vibe to, to the Dragon Age games because you want to get into reading I don't know uh, Priory of the Orange Tree is a really good pick, um, not just because it has dragons, but also for like the politics and the idea of court intrigue. There's a lot in that that is similar to in similar in um, feeling to Dragon Age. Or if you're looking for a book with extensive world building, almost on the scale of Thetis, anything by Brandon Sanderson is good, and we'll eventually cover him as well. Um, if you're looking for a TV show with a similar vibe, I would say The Witcher on Netflix is a good option. Um, season two is coming soon. Mm-hmm. Also, Nightfall is on Netflix, and that's about the Templars. So if you don't want to read Dan Jones, I mean, it's historical fiction, but it, the Nightfall is still a pretty good, pretty good TV show. Um, and again, so they've all got. They might not be fantasy in the same sense or the same uh, construction but they, uh, they have a similar feeling to them. So there's some things if you want to, looking for things to watch or read. Um, and just to end, I would like to state my goals for this podcast, one of which you, the listener, can help me achieve. Um, so my first goal is for this podcast to become popular enough that I get a free copy of Dragon Age 4. And for that, I need you, the listener, to rate, <laughs> review, and subscribe. Um, I need you to be tweeting at them if you want to say, you know, can I have a free copy of Dragon Age 4? Have you tried just asking? Maybe just ask. Maybe they're nice. I'm not, I'm not a person yet, Morgan. <laughs> I, 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 need to be, I need to be a person. None of us they... are persons yet. Yeah, so I need to be a person before they give me free stuff. Otherwise, I'll just, it won't be, it won't be right, will it? <laughs> They won't give it to me. Um, so yes, in order to help me become a person and to help Morgan become a person and this network become a person, we need you to to rate, review, and subscribe everything you listen to on the Spiky Trap Network. Um, so I can get that free copy of Dragon Age 4. Two, you don't need to help me with this. Um, this is just my personal goal. I intend for this podcast to demonstrate enough evidence of researchability to allow me into a PhD program. So if you're wondering why this why this podcast is so research heavy, that's why. Um, it's not going to change until <laughs> potentially until I get into a PhD program. And then who knows, this might just be about a podcast about what I like and why. And we'll have no research at all. Anyway, research um, is to important. help Yeah. To help these dreams come true or just to try and convert us to the Qune, again, please rate, review, and subscribe. Yeah. And, Thank you uh, for listening. Share. Share with your friends, share with your parents. Oh, yeah, absolutely that too. And uh, just get it out there. Word of mouth is very important. Um, and I would like to thank Finn for, once again, uh, diving deep with the research and just letting me cruise. Through. I actually did a little bit of research this week, but it's YouTube videos. It's easy. Um, and, uh, yeah, we will be back again with another episode in a month's time. Uh, until, until then we, uh, got 99 problems, but this world ain't one. (laughs) This has been a Spiky Trap Radio production. 
For more Spiky Trap Radio content, please head to spikytrap.com.